Good morning again. It's wonderful to see everybody this morning. And if I have never met you, uh, please give me the, the blessing of being able to meet you this morning before you leave. Likewise, if you desire to know more about what it means to follow Christ, uh, here as well, after the sermon, to speak on these things, these important matters. Life or death matters. We're studying the Gospel of John. We have been. Today we will finish uh, John chapter 11. I'm going to look and start in verse 1, and then we're going to end up in our reading this morning where we're going to start for our study of Scripture today. John chapter 11, beginning in Verse 1, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some Bibles in the pew in front of you. Uh, You'll find them there, and some of the pews in front of you. Uh, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he who you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in a day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of his sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. 
When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how they loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? And here brings us to where we are this morning. Lord, I ask for your help. I ask for unction from on high. We ask again, Lord, that you would have the minds and hearts in here fixated upon the things of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. The raising of Lazarus is the most prominent and probably the most memorable of all of Christ's miracles before his resurrection. Not only was Lazarus's illness healed, but his death was overcome by the power of the Lord. Jesus did raise others from the dead. Yet Lazarus was in the tomb several days, decomposing. This resurrection stands out. This resurrection foreshadows Christ's own resurrection. Also, this resurrection is a picture of salvation where a dead man comes to life. So first, here we see in verse 38, we see a caring and comforting Savior. Jesus is indeed a caring and comforting Savior. He was deeply moved within Deeply moved in spirit, deeply moved within. Uh, The same thing, just said a different way. We see in verse 33, uh, as we just read, he was uh, deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And here he was deeply moved within. He was standing at the tomb. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it common to use a cave during these periods of time, this period of time. It seems that this family had some means, some wealth. So this burial was a nice burial. It may have been a very nice setup as far as that can go. And there was a stone that lied against it. We've seen pictures of this before. We've seen a picture of uh, how an illustration of what it may have looked like, a tomb that covered where the Lord was. A stone against it kept people out from going in, and it kept, kept uh, animals from going in as well. And Jesus groaning in spirit once again. Jesus sighing in spirit. This man of sorrows, as we're reminded, enters into our sorrows enters into our grief, enters into our pain, 
Christian, he knows. He understands. Jesus, he felt. He even wept. Deeply moved he was over man's unbelief. Moved over sin in this world. And moved over those who he loved that were grieving. Mary and Martha. He experienced the grief of losing one who he loved. Lazarus. He experienced what we experience. Grief. Sorrow. Pain. Hurt. Betrayal. Yet, of course, Christ without sin. And we're reminded again in Philippians chapter 2. I'll just read it. He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. He also humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And as Jesus stood at the tomb, as He was moved within, it did not take long before Jesus took action. With all the grieving around Him, with everything that was, as He was moved within, with all the anticipation, with all the emotion, with everything in, uh, that was going on, and in His humanity, Jesus as well gives a command. Herman Ritterboss puts it this way, Enough now of tears and wailing. Enough honor has been bestowed on death. Against the power of death, God's glory will now enter the arena. Jesus told His disciples in verse 4, if we remember, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And when Jesus heard, when the sisters sent word to Him, saying, Lord, whom you behold, whom you, who you love is sick, and Jesus respond, responded, and the one who told him this must have been as well there when he responded with this. So this statement must have gotten back to the sisters as well. <clears throat> this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Jesus also told his disciples that he would go to awaken Lazarus out of his sleep. In fact, that Lazarus was dead. Verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of the... Awaken him. Jesus told Martha that her brother would rise again. But there was a contested response in verse 39. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Remove the stone. It's a command. Removing the stone out of the way was something that could have been done without divine intervention. Uh, Two men could have grabbed the stone and, and moved it. This stone that was before this type of tomb. Such a command would have been shocking to everyone. Picture the scene in your mind. Jesus, the Lord, standing there. Mary, Martha, a crowd of people. Those who have heard Jesus is there want to see what will this man do next. 
tombs around, the one tomb, fresh. Lazarus was in there four days. It would be similar in our context if we said, when we went to a, a memorial or such and someone has been in a, in a casket for a while and we said, hey, open it up. Or if we went to a crypt uh, or a mausoleum that was sealed several days and we were there with a bunch of people and someone said, crack it open. Remove it. Remove the front or the, the tile or the stone. Imagine the shock and the horror for loved ones and others to hear Jesus say that. Even though they heard that he was going to, that Lazarus would rise again. The disciples, Martha, Mary, and a crowd of people in shock hearing Jesus say such a thing. But Martha's response makes sense. There will be a stench. Uh, there will be an odor. He, he's going to, to, to stink. Decomposition of the physical remains started right after death. The odor kept contained in the tomb. Open this up and there's going to be a release of an odor. A strong odor. An odor that would cause gagging at times. Perhaps Martha was thinking uh, that he wanted to, to see Lazarus, to mourn over the body. Remember that they, they did this after he died. They were there with him for a period of time before he was taken to the tomb. Even a brief period. Perhaps she was thinking that. But again, it's important that it four days stands out to us. It's important and was already mentioned before because there is an erroneous ancient Jewish belief that the soul stayed near the body in the grave for three days, but on the fourth day departed. Martha's comments also debunk any wild myths that would try to assert that Lazarus was not really dead, but only sick or very near death and was put into the tomb prematurely. All kinds of wild beliefs. We hear there's wild beliefs and erroneous and blasphemous things about what happened to the Lord's body when He was in the tomb. So Martha did not expect a resurrection that day, or she wouldn't have responded in such a way. Even though in, uh, she, was, she had this information... She was told this in verse 4. It must have gotten to her. And then face to face with Jesus Christ. The crowd did not expect Lazarus to be resurrected either. Oftentimes, by way of application for us, we don't expect someone to be resurrected from their dead, uh, dead state and trespasses and sins and brought to the newness of life. At times, do we not think that, no, that person is too far gone. Uh, should I even pray for that person anymore, perhaps? We may think that way, erroneously so, but no. We pray that the lost would indeed be saved. We pray that those dead in sin would be made alive by the Lord. Oftentimes, though, we are surprised when someone who is dead comes to life. 
spiritually speaking. But we have a caring and comforting Savior. There was a contested response to this when he said, uh, remove the stone. And then we see there are conditional circumstances. Conditional circumstances. Jesus said to her, and this is not a rebuke, but a teachable moment. Oftentimes when we have children, we have these teachable moments. When we were children, there was always these teachable moments. Uh, There's times and things happen in our life, and wow, that was a teachable moment for us. seems like there's a lot of teachable moments in our lives. But Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Similar statements already made, verse 14 and 15. Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. If you believe, then you will see. Oftentimes the world has quite a different way of putting that that statement. They switch it around. I must see to believe. Very much in opposition, that statement is. Seeing is believing. I won't believe in that Christianity unless I see something. And the only thing that I see is a bunch of hypocrites. Things like that. Listen to Richard Phillips, what he says in his commentary. Jesus' instruction to Martha overturns a wildly held, a widely, I'd say wildly as well, held opinion. People say that seeing is believing. But Jesus tells Martha that if she believes, she then will see. It is true that when it comes to men and women, we often can only trust their word when we see the results. Sometimes someone will apply for a job and tell us that he is capable of doing it. We may hire him, but we also watch his performance. Only when we see what he can do will we really believe what he has said. And that's exercising good wisdom. Let me see the time of testing first, and then we'll see. But when it comes to God and His Word, His Word is enough for us to believe. And if we believe God taking Him at His Word, then we will receive. We will see and receive salvation. So, for you who are without Christ, if you will believe in Christ and put your trust in Christ... For your salvation, you will see the glory of God. In that He will change your heart, He will save your soul, and He will forgive your sins. But there's a contrast. If you will not believe in Christ, you will not see the glory of God. Your heart will remain cold, dead, and lifeless. And He will not save your soul. And you will remain dead in your sins and under His wrath. Christians, applications abound for us. For if we believe in Christ and in His sovereignty and His various providences, circumstances, and our afflictions and tribulations, we will see the glory of God. We ought to look for the glory of God in our circumstances. How can we glory, glorify God in, in our circumstances, in our struggles? Let me give you several applications for us. 
Look for silver linings in your trials that are sent your way. I'll say this time and time again, and I've said this. Uh, in my own life, Lindsay has heard me say this. Look at the silver linings, though. Or she'll remind me, look at the silver linings, though, of what the Lord is doing in this trial that has been sent our way. And we ask questions, or we ought to, God, how will you use this for your glory? Would you show me, O oh Lord, how you will use this for your glory? Secondly, we ought to look upward in our trials. And we ought to look for inward change. Look upward to Christ for our trials and look for inward change in our own hearts, in our lives. How may I grow in this, O oh Lord? Thirdly, look for redemptive purposes in your circumstances. Redemptive purposes. How can this be used for the glory of God? How can the gospel be presented here? How may I help others and serve others and understand and walk alongside others because of this? So we must ask ourselves, do we desire for, for others to glorify God? Do we exhort, encourage them to do that in their lives as well? And we ask, do I want to see the glory of God. He said to her, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Conditional circumstances. And then there is this continuous, continuous communication. This continuous communication. This example of faith that Jesus shows us here. If you believe, you will see the glory of God, verse 41. So they removed the stone, then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. They removed the stone. A couple of men probably grabbed the stone removed it. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you. You have heard me. You have heard me. Past tense, Jesus already praying before he even gets to the tomb. Before he even arrives there. Let this marinate in our mind and in our hearts when we see what Jesus did and say, God, how can I do this likewise in my own life? He approached Bathed, he approached these circumstances bathed in prayer. Praying without ceasing. Application for us. 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Some applications on praying without ceasing. Always ready to pray. We ought to always be ready to drop to our knees in our heart and pray to God. Does that mean we, we will always be praying? No, we, 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 we sleep, we eat. There's times when we're, we're not praying. We understand that. But the, the idea, if, if you are a Christian, we have a heavenly orientation now. We have a new nature now. And we will want to pray. We walk in upward living. If the Holy Spirit resides in you, individual this morning... You will desire to pray. 
What is it with men and women who have been walking with the Lord so long, but never pray? How can that be? The Holy Spirit indwells you. You will want to pray. Praying without ceasing, understanding, not losing heart, not giving up. God, I will continue to pray to you and ask of you, O oh God, knowing that you, the answer may be, as the statement goes, yes, no, or wait. We see that. Understanding. Persistent prayer, not losing heart. Cultivating a life of prayer. That's praying without ceasing. Some of what we can learn from that statement. A side note as well, Jesus, is, His prayer here is a reminder for us that a relationship with God is two things. It is personal and it is also public. It is personal in that you must know Christ. Christ must be your Lord, your Savior. You walk with Him. It is a personal thing. No one gets into heaven because their mom or their dad or their brother or their sister, or whoever it may be. No one gets to heaven because I was raised in a church, been to so-and-so church for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, or went to church as a, as a child but don't go anymore. No, it is a personal thing. Heart change. And it is also public. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul says, right? It is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He was not ashamed. We ought not to be ashamed that we are Christians. It is a public thing as well. Do we, in the things that we say, do the things that we say, come across, do people hear these things that we say and say, I believe because of that Jesus Christ was sent into the world. I knew that you always hear me, he says, but because of the people standing around the crowd, I said it that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus lifted his eyes when he prayed. For your homework, look at Psalm 121 later. Lifting your eyes up to the mountains. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Praying with your eyes open, brothers and sisters. Lifting your eyes from your device that takes so much of our time, even your life, possibly. Lift your eyes from the things of the world and lift your eyes to the Word of God. Praying God's promises. Saying, God, I know that you've heard my prayers. I know that you hear me. Jesus prayed that you hear His prayers. I know that you hear mine, God, because I'm a child of God. Lifting up our eyes when we're outside, even walking in nature, whatever it may be. I lift up my eyes and look around in the few times I get to go hunting. I, I look at God's creation. I look for deer and I pray, God, bring a deer. I just want to see one, Lord, please. And usually that's no or wait. 
He also says these things, Jesus in this context, giving those in the crowd another opportunity to believe in him. Nothing is wasted. And that they would believe that the Father sent him. Christians, we approach God with boldness knowing that he hears our prayers. But a warning for those who do not know Jesus Christ, who think that, well, I pray at times, or, you know, I prayed before, or there's times in my life where I, I have a quick shotgun prayer. Well, if you do not know Christ, that is not benefiting you in any way, shape, or form. You might as well dig a hole, scream in it, and close the hole up again. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood, your tongue mutters wickedness. We just take those two scriptures alone. Communion and communication with God continues to be broken for one who stays in their sinful state without Christ and refuses to believe in Jesus Christ. If you refuse to surrender to Jesus, you continue to reject Jesus. God's face is turned away from you. His ear is turned away from you as well. John Owen says, Enemies may be reconciled, but enmity cannot. Yes, the only way to reconcile enemies is to destroy the enmity. And that's exactly what Christ did for lost sinners. If while we were helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Only through Christ is one reconciled to God. You must ask the question, have I been reconciled back to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ? It is only through the mediator, Jesus, the great high priest, that communication to the Father in prayer is heard. Some of you come from a Roman Catholic background where you were taught to go to the priest, this man, and that is useless and worthless. Christ is the mediator between God and man. If you are not in Christ, He is not your Lord. You do not have the ear of God. You know the phrase, He earned an ear of the King, or He had the ear of of the King. You do not have God's ear if you do not know Christ. But if you are in Christ, He hears your cries. He cares for you, and your prayers to Him are heard. If you're without Christ, your first prayer must be one of repentance, one of seeking forgiveness, such as the tax collector in Luke 18. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Recognizing you have offended a holy God, that you are a sinner in need of mercy, and you're in need of a Savior. You're in the need of one who has come to seek and save that which was lost to reconcile you back to God. Jesus 
the Lamb of God hears the cry of the truly repentant. He's a caring and comforting Savior. Let us not have a contested response, but there are conditional circumstances. Let us desire continuous communion with God. And there is a clear and certain call. There is a clear and certain call. When Jesus had said these things, verse 43, He cried out with a loud voice. Jesus said this in a tone that was loud enough for all to hear. He spoke in a great voice with divine authority. This must have shook the people standing around to the core. He called out to a dead man and He called him by name, Lazarus, come forth. It's often said that when Jesus called into the tombs, if Lazarus was not named by name, every dead man would have come out due to the divine authority of the one who called. Of course, there is a day coming when the Lord will return and those in the tombs will hear His voice and will rise. And Lazarus' resurrection is a picture of this. But Lazarus is called out to live his life on the earth once again. And he did die again. And he will be risen again. And at this point in the Gospels, Jesus had not gone, gone to the cross, to the tomb, to rise again. Lazarus' resurrection does foreshadow the Lord's resurrection. His re- Lazarus' resurrection is also an illustration of the gospel call, the effectual call, the divine summons. That when God, in His mercy, is going to save a lost sinner, the call goes to that person. They realize it. They say, I'm lost, and I realize God is calling me. I realize in His Word what I must do. I must repent. I must trust in Christ. And then they are born again by faith, saved by faith. One, the one who Jesus calls with the effectual call will hear His voice. Lazarus represents those dead in sin. Jesus standing at the door, standing at the the door of the tomb, calling lost sinners from their dead trespasses and sins and calling them individually to eternal life. And the response to Christ will be obvious. It'll be obvious to everyone who was around. Everyone who was there, it was obvious when Lazarus came out of the tomb, here's this dead man coming to life. Likewise, it's also obvious when a man who is dead in sin becomes alive in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Sinners who are dead in sin come to life through the gospel call, by the preaching of the Word of God, through the reading of the Word of God. And He is still calling. His offer still stands. He's still calling sinners to eternal life, to follow Him. So not only is there a clear and certain call, there is a credible exchange. 
there is a credible exchange. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with cloth. John makes it clear here that Lazarus died. When people passed away during these times, usually they were placed in a linen sheet. Long linen sheet, longer than their body, wrapped up head to toe, wrapped up this way, and then tucked in arms and feet. Grave clothing, they're called. It's called grave clothing or grave clothes. So if you picture Lazarus, possibly like a well-dressed mummy, the wrappings were loose enough for someone to be able to stand up if indeed they were alive, which Lazarus was when he was called forth. They could perhaps hop a little bit, move about a little bit, but having, it's like having your shoelaces tied together. You can move a little bit, but you're not going too far. And having your eyes and face covered, you're not going to go too far. You can still shuffle around a little bit. Don't try that at home, though. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. These grave clothing has been exchanged for grace clothing. His robes for mine. Take off your old grave clothing that represents your death. Those rags are no longer for you. Now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Interesting to note as well that Jesus has others help unbinding to unbind him. Jesus called him out. Salvation is by grace. Lazarus is standing there. And Jesus uses his disciples. Jesus uses them to help him to unbind his garments. Perhaps Mary and Martha were the ones that were right there to help. God is the one who calls dead men to life, but he gives us the privilege of being used in the process. James Boyce said it like this, You cannot bring the dead back to life, but we can bring the word of Christ to them. We can do a preparatory work, and we can do work afterwards. We can help remove stones, stones of ignorance, stones of error, and stones of despair. After the miracle worker, excuse me, after the miracle, we can help the new Christian by unwinding the grave clothes of doubt, fear, introspection, and discouragement. But it's important to remember they must be transformed by the power of God first. And then after all of this, there are conflicting responses. Conflicting responses. Two responses, two reactions. Verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw that what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And they weren't going to tell the Pharisees, so maybe the Pharisees would rejoice in this situation. They were tattletales or rats or however we want to put the vernacular. Instigators. 
But there was the response of faith. And there was the reaction of belief. Verse 45. But then there was the response of uh, a cynical response. A response of unbelief. Going to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were known enemies. Hostile to Jesus Christ. And these went and gave him the latest news. This is what's happened now with, with Jesus. And verse 47 through 57 is the result of this. Verse 47, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that for one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Okay, so we see the chief priests and the Pharisees working together, uh, including the, the Sanhedrin. And the leader, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, was with them. Jesus exposed sins of the Pharisees, and he was a threat to the Sadducees, religious prestige. So they both hated him, and now they work together in order to kill him. So things have been ratcheted up a notch. Caiaphas is singled out, and we will see more of him down the road. He says something meant in a cynical way, but the Lord meant it for more of a, a, a deeper meaning. John explains what that is. Now he did not say this, verse 51, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas said something, he didn't even mean it the way that it is. But he being the high priest that year, he spoke these things, and indeed, it is true. Not only for the Jewish nation, but for Gentiles too. He will gather his people for whom he died. And he is still gathering his people. This substitutionary death, this definite atonement for a people. Christ died not simply to make salvation possible or available to man. Christ died to make salvation certain. For whom did Christ die? For the transgression of His people. You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. To give His life a ransom for many. And Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. So we see definite atonement as well there. So from that day on, verse 53, they planned together to kill him. It was settled. It is as if it was written in stone. They were plotting to kill Jesus. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. 
Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now if the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders, that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it, so that they might seize him. Okay, so we just look at this, make some observations. Jesus went out, spent time with the disciples before his final entrance into Jerusalem. About 15 miles from Jerusalem. Remember in Bethany, that's about two miles. So this is possibly, this is further out. Many went up to Jerusalem. The Passover was near. The crowds were immense. Jerusalem would have crowded with pilgrims. And they were seeking for Jesus. Continually. Seeking for him, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They had men out looking for him. And consider how that must have been in a time to where there's no electronics. There's no way of tracking where someone goes. It's just a matter of, we know on uh, the Sabbath he'll be there. We know where he'll be then, but we must find him in the meantime. Go out looking for him. And if anyone knows where he is, they must tell us where he is. If you're associated with Jesus, you better tell us or else. There are going to be consequences. And indeed, there are consequences even today. Are there not? When we follow Christ and when we align ourselves with Jesus Christ. But oh, is he worthy? Is he worthy of it? Others doubted, saying, do you really think he's going to show up? And indeed, he will. Jesus is a caring and comforting Savior. Remember that as you go through this Thanksgiving holiday. Maybe there's contention. Maybe there's hard relationships Jesus, Jesus is a caring and comforting Savior. Maybe you're lonely. If Jesus is your Lord, He is caring and He's comforting. Maybe you're hurting this morning. He cares. He's comforting. Our response to His commands should not be a contested response, but one of faith. There's conditional circumstances he gives. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Continual communion with God, something we need to continue to cultivate. Ready to praise Him, ready to pray to Him, and ready to proclaim Him in our daily walk. It's a clear and certain call. Repentance, turning from sin, and faith, trusting in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. There's a credible exchange. These grave clothing for grace clothing. His robes for mine. There's always a conflicting response to the call that Christ gives. 
be either cynical or, or confessing. One either shakes his fist at Jesus Christ or one will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Which one is your response this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that you care for us, that you comfort us, that you teach us and you help us. You're the one who teaches us to pray. We can learn how to pray from your word. Help us to develop a continual communion with you, Lord. Each and every day, God, you have a clear and consistent call. You call all men to take up their cross and follow you. There's a credible exchange. Your robes for ours. You clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. Let our response be not conflicting. Let our response be one of confessing Christ, one of bowing the knee to Christ. Lord, perhaps there are some in here who are straying. We pray in your love you would draw them close, draw them near. Perhaps they just need someone to pray with them. They need someone to walk with them. Lord, provide that person. Perhaps there's someone here who do not know you, Lord, and want to, want to know you even now. And they say, what's the way? Show me the way. Well, Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And Lord, whatever this holiday season brings for us, rejoicing and times of laughter or times of sorrow. Believe us in our God and you care for us. In his name, Jesus' name we pray, amen.